we've seen Paul the last few times we've been together, got himself in a little bit of trouble in Jerusalem, trying to be a good witness before his Jewish brothers and sisters. He goes to the temple, brings some guys with him, uh, wanting to help them make a vow and follow through and worship in that way. And of course, as he goes into the temple, they assume he's brought Gentiles into the temple, and they bring the beat down, and then he gets arrested. And uh, we, we saw last week with uh, Stephen, him kind of before this uh, uh, being sent to Felix after being before the Sanhedrin. And we pick it up in chapter 24, and basically uh, Paul is before this uh, governor uh, Felix. And there's a, he, he's basically, it's like this courtroom drama. And what I, what I really want to do is kind of pull your attention to, um, to verse 16 of chapter 24, uh, because I think this is kind of a key thing that's going on here. It says, this being so, Paul speaking, he says, this being so, I myself always strive to have a conscience without offense towards God and men. That's what we want to look at. Uh, tonight. So let's pray. Father, we thank you that uh, we get to do this. We get to come together and, and learn from your word. And I pray that as we uh, study this and uh, hear it read again, I pray God your spirit would not just teach us, but quicken our hearts to, to walk in this, Lord. Um, Lord, I, I, I confess, you know that if I am honest, there's things in, uh, my conscience would convict me of. But I thank you, Lord, that your word says it's the blood of Christ that cleanses us from an evil conscience. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us to live in such a way that we, as much as we can know, are living in a way that's pleasing to you, living in a way that's without offense toward you or towards the people around us, God. Use this text to show us why that's important and how we might do that. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. So, verse 1. Now, after five days, Ananias, the high priest, came down with the elders and a certain orator named Tertullus, and they gave evidence to the governor against Paul. And when he, had, he was called upon, Tertullus began his accusation, saying, Seeing that through you we enjoy great peace and prosperity is being brought to this nation by your foresight, we accept it always and in all place, most noble Felix, with all thankfulness. Nevertheless, not to be tedious to you any further, I beg you to hear by your courtesy a few words from us. This is what we call kissing up. Now this guy is a great orator, obviously. He had that reputation. And he was, in a sense, hired by the Jews to kind of plead their case. He's the prosecuting attorney, you might say. And it's interesting here because what he's doing is he is really, really flattering Felix, especially when we know a little bit about Felix from secular history. Felix was the only, uh, the only person in this position as a governor in Rome who began his life being born a slave. And he had this reputation for being brutal and for being immoral. Uh, one of the things he was famous for was all the ladies that he had around him constantly. He was, uh, he was not noble by any stretch of the imagination. But of course, this guy's flattering him um, as much as he possibly can to get in uh, on his good side. Now, he doesn't stop there. Tertullus doesn't stop by flattery. He also wants to vilify Paul. Look at verse 5. 
He says, For we have found this man a plague, a creator of dissension among all the Jews throughout the world, and a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, and we seized him, we, we seized him and wanted to judge him according to our law. But the commander Lysias came by and with great violence took him out of our hands, commanding his, accuser, his accusers to come to you. Um, then he says, By examining him yourself, you may ascertain all these things of which we accuse him. And the Jews also assented, maintaining that these things were so. So after he flatters Felix, he decides, Okay, I'm going to make sure I really vilify Paul. But do you recognize what's lacking here? Evidence. <laughs> There's no real evidence. He's basically just saying, hey, this guy's a plague. He's name-calling. He's a plague. Uh, he's a creator of dissension. He's a ringleader. And that word is as much of a negative connotation then as it was today. He's, he's a dodgy character, this guy. I, I can imagine Paul, maybe when he hears this, uh, that he's... he's uh, causing this dissension among Jews throughout the world. He's probably going, oh, cool, spread it around. That's good. I think it's going well. Um, but it's interesting, too, that he wants to say, oh, we wanted to try them according to our laws if they're doing something kind of very themselves noble, innocent. But they beat the crud out of Paul, and had to be pulled, he had to be pulled away uh, by uh, Lysias, the commander, and the other Roman soldiers. It's also interesting because what he says here, he, he tells Felix, he says, look, if you examine him yourself you may ascertain all the things by which we accuse him. And it seems that he has this kind of plot to think, okay, I don't have any evidence against Paul, but maybe Paul will incriminate himself as he speaks on the stand, as he kind of gives testimony to himself. Now, in looking at this, it teaches us something about what it means to have a clean conscience. And let me, let me just say this. When we talk about our conscience, the idea of our conscience is that sense, that we have an innate sense of right and wrong. Everyone does, whether they're a believer or not a believer, has this innate sense of right and wrong. You might say the conscience is kind of a window that lets the light of God come in, or let the light of truth that comes into our hearts. Now, depending on our upbringing and our culture will depend the kind of the, the coloring of the glass of that window or how dirty that window is, but still we have this, this conscience, this ability to receive this idea of right and wrong. Paul, of course, talks about this in Romans chapter 2. So when Paul says in verse 16 that he's... Uh, he's, he's striven to be, have a conscience without offense towards God and men. That means he's kind of trying to keep that window clean. He wanted to make sure that, that it didn't get marred up by behavior or by attitudes or by actions, that he could stand before God. And in fact, he says in 1 Corinthians 4, he says, look, I don't know anything against myself. He says, it doesn't justify me. It doesn't make me right before God, but I don't know anything against myself. He says, but you know what? This doesn't even justify me. I'll stand before God one day and he'll judge me then. But that clean conscience is this mindset of saying, you know, as much as I know, I, I'm, I'm progressing the way God wants me to progress. I'm pursuing God the way He wants me to pursue Him. That's something we're called to pursue. Now, in pursuing that, though, as we see right here in this immediate context, as when we're pursuing this conscience without offense, that doesn't protect us from accusations. Just if, even if we can feel like we can stand before God, and as far as we know, we've not done anything offensive towards men, people can still say, oh yeah, what about this? In fact, often the, the more we try to have a clear conscience, the more people throw stuff at us. People hate it when we, people, just, I don't know what it is about human nature, but we just don't like it when somebody else seems to have it together. We want to pull them down somehow. 
And so this is what's happening to Paul. He's, he's, he's going to court. And these guys are pulling him down. And we need to recognize that. In pursuing this good thing of a clear conscience, it doesn't mean that, oh, great, everyone will love me. And this is important to you because Proverbs does say, if a man's ways please the Lord, uh, uh, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. But we've got to remember Proverbs, they're principles. They're not promises. So it's not a promise that if you're pleasing the Lord, everyone's going to like you. Obviously, that didn't work for Jesus, okay? <laughs> nor the apostles, uh, nor many Christians throughout history. So it's important that we recognize that having a clear conscience, pursuing a clear conscience, doesn't mean we're not going to experience accusations. It also, here's the second thing, it also doesn't mean that we can't defend ourselves. Look what Paul does, okay? Verse 10. Then Paul, after the governor had nodded to him to speak, answered, In as much, uh, in as much, uh, I lost my place. Here it is. In as much as I know that you have been for many years a judge of this nation, I do more cheerfully answer for myself. Because you may ascertain that it is no more than twelve days since I went to Jerusalem to worship. And they neither found in me or in the temple disputing with anyone, nor inciting the crowds, uh, either in the synagogues or in the city. Nor can they prove the things which they accuse, they now accuse me. Now notice kind of comparing Paul to Tertullus. Paul, he doesn't do any flattery here. He just kind of says the facts. In fact, even when he's being respectful, and, and this is one of the things that Paul definitely does, he demonstrates due respect. He, he basically just says the facts. You know what? You've been a judge for a long time. I'm happy to share it before you. I'm not afraid to kind of say what my, my story is. I'm not afraid to kind of lay out the facts. But it's also interesting that Paul says clearly about himself, and this was true about Paul, he says, look, when I was in the temple, I wasn't disputing with anybody, nor was I inciting the crowds. Now, let me ask you a question as we've gone through Acts. Have we seen times when Paul was disputing? Well, absolutely. Paul wasn't afraid of a fight, was he? He wasn't, he wasn't afraid to kind of say, look, we're going to wrestle through this stuff. It's important. And Paul also wasn't afraid uh, necessarily of cr- uh, causing a commotion. It wasn't his goal, but it happened, and he knew it would happen. Now, the reason I bring this out is this, okay? Paul is here not wanting to enter into foolish debates. He, he knew, okay, going to, the, going to the temple to worship, this is not the time to de- debate the fact that these guys have bad theology. They're not, they're not embracing Jesus as the Christ. This is a bad thing, but this is not the place to do it. He had wisdom. He knew what he, he needed to do. He, and, and he did that out of respect for those people. And I think this is an important aspect about us living with a clear conscience. Part of that is knowing when it's the right time to dispute and when it's the wrong time to dispute. When it's the right time to sort of bring people into a debate and when it's the wrong time. Part of living with a clear conscience is like that. In fact, I think Paul uh, experienced enough of foolish disputes that he, he wrote about this when he writes to Titus, when he writes to this young pastor Titus about how to bring the churches in order. He says... Avoid foolish disputes, genealogies, contentions, and strivings about the law, for they are unprofitable and useless. He even goes on to say, reject the divisive man after the first and second admonition, knowing that such a person is warped and sinning, being self-condemned. Notice, bad conscience equals what? Argumentativeness. That's kind of the idea. And so Paul, Paul can say this. He can say, look, he can defend himself without having to get in a big uproar, without having to be defensive, you might say. So verse 14 says, Paul says, But this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, so I worship the God of my fathers. Now this is interesting. By Tertullus calling the way a sect, he's basically saying this is an illegal religion. 
And this is something that Rome shouldn't recognize. It's not really part of Judaism. Now, that, that's in one sense it was true. The Judaism that was being practiced wasn't even biblical Judaism necessarily. And so, in a sense, it wasn't connected to that Judaism. In another sense, it was actually the fulfillment of of the Old Testament law, fulfillment of what God's, uh, uh, what these people were supposedly waiting for. Now, here's what's interesting about this as well. That when Paul goes to sort of give his defense, and Paul goes to talk about uh, this clear conscience, he brings up this issue of accountability. Because he says right off the bat, he says, I worship the God of my fathers. Now, I do want to say one more thing before I almost forgot to say this. I love the fact uh, that this is called the way, that the believers were called part of the way. Because it's an indication that it wasn't just, I mean, it could have been identified, we're part of the truth, right? But it didn't, they didn't identify that way. It would have been accurate, but they didn't identify that way. They, they identified as the way. Showing this was not just about, here's the belief system we have, but here's the lifestyle that we have. We are actual followers of Jesus. That's an important thing to think about. But he says, in doing so, he says, I worship the God of my fathers. In other words, we didn't come up with some new God. We're worshiping the, the God of our fathers. This is, this is the God of the Old Testament. The God has revealed himself to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is that God. He's the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's the God who, who became flesh and dwelt among us. This is that God that we worship. He also says, look, notice, believing all things which are written in the Law and the Prophets. Now, this is really significant because one of, the, one of the things that a lot of, I guess, modern evangelicals want to say is, like, look, we believe that in this book is the Word of God, but this book isn't the Word of God. And here's the interesting thing, because it seems as if at least the Old Testament, the apostles, we've seen this before in the book of Acts, the apostles treated the Scriptures as the very Word of God. They believed all that was in it. They didn't, they didn't walk away from it at all. And this is an important aspect because if we're going to be following Jesus as the way, part of that means we worship God as He revealed Himself, of course, but also means that we're believing the things that God said. We believe the revelation that God gave us. And Paul said, this is where I have. Notice, notice he also says in verse, uh, verse 15, he says, I have hope in God, that's a joyous expectation in God, which they themselves, speaking of the Sanhedrin, or, or members of the Sanhedrin, also accept that there will be a resurrection of the dead, both of the just and the unjust. This being so, I always strive to have a good con a conscience without offense toward God and men. Now, all these things I would put under the heading of Paul taking accountability before God seriously. This is important because we're talking about having a clear conscience before God. We're, we're, we're talking about this kind of sub-point of that doesn't mean that we can't defend ourselves. But where do you get that confidence to defend yourself? How do, you, how do you know? Because Not because you're a lone ranger doing what you want, but because you're trying to submit yourself to the authority of God. You, want to be, you know you're accountable to God. Now, um, Paul goes on to, to say, uh, we'll, we'll talk about the resurrection of the just and the unjust when we get down to, uh, to verse 25. But for now, look at verse 17. He says, Now after many years I came to bring alms and offerings to my nation, in the midst of, of which some Jews from Asia found me, purified in the temple, neither with a mob nor with a tumult. They ought to have been here before you to object if they had anything against me. Or else let those who are here themselves say, if they found any wrongdoing in me while I stood before the council. 
Unless it is for this one statement which I, uh, I cried out, standing among them concerning the resurrection of the day uh, of the dead, uh, I am being judged by you this day. So again, Paul's exposing their lack of witnesses against them, their lack of testimony, the fact that really what you had was just uh, some people hating the fact that he believed in the resurrection, the Sadducees hating that idea. Now, the point, though, is this, is that here Paul is wanting to have a clear, a clear conscience before men, but that doesn't mean he's not willing to defend himself. The clear conscience just means he could do it without being defensive. Now, verse 22. says, But when Felix heard these things, having a more accurate knowledge of the way, he adjourned the proceedings and said, When Lysias, the commander, comes down, I will make a decision on your case. So he commanded the centurion to keep Paul, to let him have, uh, and to let him have liberty, and told him not to forbid any of his friends to provide for him or visit him. So Paul, in a sense, gets put in house arrest. Now, here's what Felix is trying to do. Felix is trying to take a neutral position. He doesn't want to say, "Yep, he's guilty. Go ahead, stone him if you want to. It's up to you." Neither does he say, no, he's innocent, lest it look like he thinks that this new sect of the Nazarenes is a good thing. So he's trying to keep a, a neutral position. He's a good politician, I'll give him that. Okay, He's trying to keep a, 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 a neutral position. What's interesting, though, and this is going to kind of bring up the, the third thing about having a conscience without offense. We've said so far, it, it doesn't protect us from accusations. Uh, it doesn't mean we can't defend ourselves. But here's what it does mean. A clear conscience before God and men, it gives us a confidence in the truth. When we are actually walking in the way, when we actually are trying to be doers of the word, when we're actually wanting to say, God, I, wanna, I don't want to just understand what it means to follow you. I want to actually follow you. I wanna, we're actually doing that. When we have that kind of clear conscience, then, then we find ourselves having that boldness that Paul has here. And this is important because we are surrounded by guys like Felix who want to try to stay neutral. Yeah, Christianity, that's a, that's a good thing. I can see how it works for you. You know, well, I wouldn't want to say it's bad, but you know, there's, there's some weird stuff there. You know, it's yeah, trying to be neutral. And, and we need to be bold with these kind of people. Not brash, not, not unsensitive, not looking for a dispute or inciting a riot, uh, but definitely... We need a confidence in the truth, a holy confidence that we know that we know that we know who Jesus is, is who he said he was, and he's worthy to be followed. Now, so he says this about Paul, and it says in verse 24, after some days, now we don't know how long this is, but we do know later on from this context that Paul ends up being in this house arrest for two years, so it could have been happening from time to time over this time. But it says, after some days, when Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, he sent for Paul, notice, and heard him concerning the faith in Christ. So you get this idea that Felix is curious, at least, about this way, about this Christ, faith in Christ. Now, we also know something about Drusilla, who's, who's named here. We know that she's, of course, it says she's Jewish. We, we, well, we know that she uh, is... Uh, I want to say that, if I get this right, I want to say the niece of Agrippa II, Herod Agrippa II. Now, we also know that she was considered extremely beautiful, one of the most beautiful women around. And at this time, when she's here married to Felix, she's down the list on the number of, of uh, partners that he's had. And he's a middle-aged man, and she's about 18 or 19. 
so this kind of testifies a little bit of his character. Now, the interesting thing as well is, uh, here she is uh, with Paul. Maybe it was her that was provoking Felix. I want to hear about this faith in Christ. This sounds like something new. Maybe it's more progressive than the old school Judaism that I've been exposed to. I don't know. So here's what Paul does. Look at verse 25. It says, Now as Paul reasoned about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix was afraid. Now, we'll talk about Felix's response in a minute, but let's look at the things that Paul decides to bring up. Let's look at this confidence that Paul had. It says, first, he reasoned, which means, to reason means to say something thoroughly. He's really trying to present the best arguments. He's not just trying to, he's not just being preachy, you might say. He's not just saying, here's what you have to believe, buddy. He's trying to say, this is why you should believe in Jesus, and this is why you must believe in Jesus. So he's trying to explain things as thoroughly as he can. And the subjects he brings up are first, righteousness. He brings up this whole issue of righteousness. Now, look what the Bible says. Look what Jesus said in John chapter 16. Jesus said, When the Holy Spirit has come, He will convict the world of sin, notice, of righteousness and of judgment. Of sin because they do not believe in Me. Of righteousness, notice, because I go to my Father and you see me no more. Of judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. Now I see, when Jesus says there, of righteousness, the Holy Spirit's work of convicting of righteousness, has to do with convicting about the righteousness of Christ. That Jesus is the standard. He, he is the fulfillment of the law in that he lived the law perfectly. Not just the letter of the law, more than that, he lived the spirit of the law perfectly. He's the standard of righteousness. Now you can imagine talking to a, a guy who was uh, kind of, who has beat his way to the top from slavery to being a governor, someone who's known for his brutality and his immorality, talking about, yeah, but what about Jesus? He's the standard of righteousness. But this is really important because I guarantee that I'm, I'm convinced that Paul also brought up what he thinks, similar things that he said to the Corinthians. Like what he said to, to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 5.21, For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. I can imagine Paul bringing up this issue of this, this, this great exchange that God gives us. He takes our sin, Christ takes our sin, and gives us his righteousness. And, and, and pleading with Felix to understand this. Felix, listen, think about your life. Drusilla, you know the standard of God. Jesus fulfilled that standard in a way that we can just mar- only marvel at. We need to have an, a, a righteousness equal to his. I wonder if Paul might have brought up some of the things that Jesus talked about in the Sermon on the Mount. You know, if your righteousness does not exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of God. I don't know. But he labors with him with righteous about righteousness, but not about that, but about self-control. Probably the very opposite thing that this guy ever showed, self-control. Now, why would he bring up the issue of self-control? Is he just really trying to corner this guy about his sin? Could be, but it could also be him wanting to recognize what sin is. Remember again what Jesus said in John chapter 8. Jesus answered, he's speaking to religious leaders here, and he's talking to Pharisees and scribes who actually believe that he was probably the Messiah. He says to them, Mr. they say to you, whoever commits a sin is a slave to sin. 
slave of sin. And a slave does not abide in the house forever, but a son abides forever. Therefore, if the son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. Now, the religious people were balking against Jesus saying, you know, you, you shall know the truth and the truth will set you free if you abide in my words. And they're like, what? We've never been a slave to anybody. And then Jesus says this. And maybe it was here with Felix that Felix hears this stuff about righteousness and thinks, you know, I'm not that bad. I know you're Jewish friends. I know these guys that, that kind of brought you here in the first place. They're the dodgy ones. And maybe he talks about this reality of self-control, this reality of, of we have choices to make. And if we, if we find ourselves choosing to sin, guess what that, that proves? We are indeed slaves to sin. And we need Jesus to set us free. We can't just free ourselves. But he also talks about, notice, the judgment to come. Now, Paul said, talks about, earlier in verse 15, this reality that he has a hope in God that there's this resurrection of the dead, both of the just and the unjust. And I want you to quickly turn with me to John chapter 5. Really quick. John chapter 5. So in John chapter 5, Jesus is talking about judgment, life and judgment, and how uh, he's over both those things. He, they, they, all come, they both come through him. So Jesus says, John, 24, John 5, verse 24, Jesus says, Most surely I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life. And he shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death into life. Most assuredly, I say to you, the hour is coming, and now is, when the dead will hear, hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he who granted, he has granted the Son to have life in himself, and has given him authority to execute judgment also, because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this. For the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth. And those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. Now, think about this. Jesus makes it really clear in the Gospel of John that he is the judge, and there is a resurrection, and at that resurrection, all judgment is going to take place. This is what Paul is saying to a man who holds his life in his hands. Felix could say, uh, that's enough, you're dead. Here, go where the Jews are going to stone you to death. He could say that. Or he could just himself put him in death for being involved in a false religion in Rome. But Paul is so confident in the truth. He's so confident in Jesus as Savior and Lord and Judge. He's so confident that Jesus would want to even save someone like Felix that he's bold. And he says, he says, look, this, this is what you need to understand. There's a judgment to come. Jesus is that judge. He conquered death. That proves that he's going to come back and judge. So, that's pretty bold, isn't it? Where does that boldness come from? It comes from having a clear conscience before God and man. This is why we wrestle. This is why I wrestle. This is why I, I chicken out a lot of times. It's easy to do this here. Very easy, to be honest. But when I'm at work in an office place that's you know mostly non-believers, 
And I start, you know, having a conversation, trying to get it to the gospel, which is hard to do as it is. But we, even when it's there, there's times when I kind of check it out because I think, yeah, I'm kind of a hypocrite, though. I just was wasting all kinds of time in the office right now, and I just feel like a loser. I don't have that boldness. But there's something about walking with God, just wanting to be obedient with, to, to God, wanting to be pleasing to God, knowing you're, stand in, you're standing in God through Christ, that gives you a confidence to say, no, it is Jesus, and it's Him that you need to know. It's Him that we're about. Interesting how Felix responds. It says, Felix was afraid. It shows something, doesn't it? It shows there was a conviction there. It says, Felix was afraid. And notice it says, he, and he answered, go away for now. And when I have a convenient time, I will call for you. So he kind of covers his fear by saying it's not convenient. But also it says in verse 26, that meanwhile he had hoped that money would be given to him by Paul. So he figured Paul had some influence. He must have some money as well, which probably wasn't the case. Uh, it says that he might release him. Therefore, he sent him, uh, sent for him more often and conversed with him. So I want you to notice these different sort of motivations. Fear. No, no, this is too scary. I don't want to hear about this. Go away. Money. Well, maybe this, I can get some benefit. Let's see if I get some benefit from this before I actually commit. And these things really just speak of the hardening of their heart. Now, as we said, verse 27, it says that uh, he gets left there for two years. And he gets, uh, Felix gets uh, succeeded uh, by a guy named Porcius Festus, who we'll talk about later. And Paul's still stuck in prison. But you know what Paul also still was? He still was standing before God with a clear conscience. You know, when I see Jesus face to face and I'm judged, I'm confident that because of what he's done for me, um, he is going to say to me, well done, good and faithful servant. I am confident of that. But I know before I hear those words, there's going to be a judgment, and it's a scary thing to think about what might burn up in my life that was wood, hay, and stubble. It's scary for me to think about this idea that I'm going to have to answer for how I spent my time and my talent and my treasure. I'm going to have to, I'm going to see him face to face and I'm going to think, why was I, I not more bold, more confident? I'm convinced that when the Bible talks about in the book of Revelation how he wipes away every tear from their eyes, from the eyes of the saints, those tears are not so much tears of pain because there's no more pain in heaven. I believe they're tears of regret. I don't think if they were tears of joy, I think he let them flow. I think they're tears of regret. I think there's a reality, guys, that we look at the Apostle Paul, and I was glad that Stephen brought this up last week, because we look at the Apostle Paul, we can sometimes think, ah, that's just Paul. He's a, you know, no one's like Paul. And that's true. None of us are going to have ministries like Paul, that's for sure. None of us have the skill set or even the calling in our life that Paul had. But we do have the same Holy Spirit as Paul. We are following the same Jesus. At least we're supposed to be. You know, God really wants to bring us to a place. I'll tell you what, there's no greater freedom than having a clear conscience. So let's pursue this.
first and foremost, that we need to pursue it, is that, as it says in Hebrews, as I mentioned earlier, by the cleansing of the blood of Christ. It's the only way our conscience can be cleansed, is to say, all right, Lord, I've blown it again today. I just pray you wash me clean again. That's how our conscience stays clean. We keep short accounts with God. We seek after Him. And we say, Lord, help me to walk in obedience to You. Not to earn anything, but because You're worthy of it. That's where we're going to have this kind of boldness. Amen?